The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. I know some people are visiting. Hi, Barbara. <laughs> visiting friends and getting to Common Ground or once or twice a year time because you're in town. So welcome. Nice to see you all again. And so we've been looking at this really central part of learning how to be a human being, which is taking responsibility. You know, there is a thinking mind, I'm sure you've noticed, but it's surprising how much we don't notice, right? Because in those moments we are what we call lost in thought, right? Or there's no separation in a way, there's no space, maybe it's a better way of saying it, no space of wisdom, space of compassion that understands this mental activity we call thinking, right? Sometimes thinking often involves language, but sometimes just imagining with thought or with images too. And we're, when we're absorbed into that, into the meaning that those thoughts construct, then there's no wisdom or understanding that thoughts are just thoughts, that that's just mental activity, which is in no way dismissing the value of thinking. Thinking is a very powerful tool, really is the glue that allows us to connect. I mean, a lot of, not exclusively maybe, but a lot of the power of community, of love, of connection with others happens with thought. Even with our pets that we're not necessarily talking to, although we do that too, but just the ideas that we construct about our pets, the meaning we construct, is quite impactful. So remember that the meaning that thoughts construct, the meaning that arises out of our imagining with mental images, that meaning is impactful. And, this is the kicker, and it's just that being known. It's just that meaning being known. Even if it's really beautiful meaning, like we're all in this together. Right? We need to um, just sense our commonality. Right? So that's a relatively beautiful thought or mental construction. And it can have an impact as a beautiful mental construction, and it can also be seen as just being a mental construction. And one doesn't negate the other, you know, that it's just the thought being known. We need to work together to make this a more just world, right? That can be an inspiring, scary or whatever, but uh, inspiring thought, yeah. We do need to work together to take care of each other, and especially those who are being mistreated. And to understand, like, there's some real truth to that, and it's just a thought being known. And it's like, we're capable of this nuance. You know, it's called growing up as a human being to be able to understand the full breadth and depth of our experience, what the meaning that our mind, our thinking mind constructs, what it is and what it isn't. 
It's like when the mind is more rooted in the present moment, then the construction of our thoughts, the meaning that our thoughts construct, we are starting to connect the power, the reason that our, the meaning that our mind, the thinking mind constructs is powerful is because it points the heart, the mind, back to the present moment. Some of you know I repeated this a couple times in the last few weeks, that when the Buddha talked about wisdom, he talked about it along the spectrum. The first part of wisdom is information, new information that challenges the existing information thinking we have in our mind. Right? So we listen to a teacher or we read something or we have a conversation with a wise friend of ours and their words, the meaning that they're constructing with their words and sharing with me, challenges, right? And so it kind of gets under my skin a little bit and I think about it. Oh yeah, what did they said that? What, what was that, that my friend said or that the Buddha said or this teacher said? Oh yeah. So we start to digest it, we reflect on it, we integrate the thinking, the new information, and start to own it because we're using that information, that new way of thinking, to illuminate the present moment, like how it is for me, my own experience. And then it allows me to see something, that new way of thinking, that new way of viewing, like now I'm relating to my experience through this new that the meaning of those words I just got, now that I've digested them and I've kind of owned them, now those words allow me to see it creates a, a bit of a window into the present moment. This is uh, from Saida Utejaniya, one of my teachers, a Burmese Buddhist monk. He said, we can only truly start practicing when the mind has reached a state of calm. This is the window in the wall of delusion through which we can investigate our experience. Right? So we're all living in the walls of delusion. These are our thinking patterns, the ways that we're very comfortable constructing meaning, constructing the story that we live inside of. Right? And then we get new information and we digest that information. We use it in it. That combined with a settled mind and body, calm, right, creates a window. And through that window, we have insight. So that's the end of that spectrum. New information, thinking about the new information, seeing something about the present moment that we haven't seen before. Understanding things differently because of this new information. Like even the new information that the present moment is relevant, right? The, like the teaching that we get from the Buddha that, hey, we tend to be oblivious about the here and now. And that's, it's like, it's a different, you know, normally we're deluded, like one of the walls that we're deluded by, it's just a concept, time, right? And we have this sense of I, me, I'm moving through time, and like we're a car driving through some terrain, I wonder what's up ahead. Oh, I remember what was behind me, right? But 
another frame, right, a new piece of information is we never go anywhere. It's always the present moment. Right? And the, and the present moment is always here and now, never changes. No past, no future. And in the present moment, there's all this dance, this activity, this movement of sound, this movement of sight, this movement of thought, this movement of smell and taste and touch that's moving because of innumerable causes and conditions that we sometimes get a sense of like that particular, the nature of that particular dance. But mostly we don't really, can't really comprehend the depth of causality, you know, cause and effect. It's so complex, so rich. But we know it's moving and we sense it's moving lawfully here and now. And the here and now is really characterized by awareness because the awareness doesn't have, when, you, when you're able to start, it's subtle, of course, when you're able to start intuiting awareness, one of the things the mind intuits about awareness is it doesn't come and go. That's why we sometimes use that image, that um, simile of a mirror that's just reflecting the movement of the present moment, you know, the movement of sound and sight and touch and thought and... But the mirror, the reflective knowing, isn't coming and going. It's just this capacity, that knowing, that consciousness just knows whatever's coming and going. So there's something in this training, right? We're using this piece of information. We're not even imagining it. It's metaphysically true. Okay, so I'm this permanent stable awareness. We're not constructing another story about awareness. We're just using that piece of information that there is this awareness, uh, this awareness that's just here and now, right? To, uh, To see, have a window into a new way of relating, a new way of understanding everything that's in motion, which is really what we would normally call my life. Like my emotional self is what's in motion. The ideas I have about the relationships to other people, the relationship to the world, the relationship to my values, that's all of that stuff that's in motion, coming and going, flowing on, never really no real beginning or end to that onward flowing of emotion and thought and sensation and sound. And that new understanding, seeing the endless movement of all of that body and mind stuff, right? it really helps the mind understand how to let go of attachment, let go of personalizing and getting tight, being controlling, being involved in hate, hating and liking, being oppressed by our preferences, we still know the difference between what's pleasant and unpleasant, right? That's not going to go away. That's just built in. But we don't have to uh, allow that pleasantness and unpleasantness to rule our lives. So we have a really pleasant afternoon. Well, that's a really pleasant afternoon being known. 
or an unpleasant afternoon. Well, that's just that. Because we have this refuge right, that we're cultivating on purpose. Like I said at the end of the sit, being peaceful with conditions. We want to be wise and kind and peaceful. Anybody not want to be wise and kind and peaceful with the conditions of your life? Right? Well, we have this moment right now. We can definitely practice being wise and kind and peaceful because that is what leads to it. And it's a different window because the normal understanding view is I got to get somewhere and then I'll be kind, wise. I have to drive through time, right? I'm here, not wise, kind, and peaceful with conditions. And I've got to navigate my life to that place where I'm going to become the person who's wise and kind and peaceful with conditions as opposed to being wise and kind and peaceful with, and then let's say we fail, like we're reactive with the conditions right now. Well, then I can be kind and wise and peaceful with that reactivity. And let's say I fail again. Well, see, we always end up, and with the next moment, That's what that window, that insight gives us, that we just keep practicing. Because we're not just, it's not about following the mind, it's about training the mind. That's why we get the new information, we think about it, and then that leads to a new way of understanding, a new way of being with experience. That's how we become a new person. Not by wanting to become a new person, but by getting some information thinking about integrating, owning that information so that we're actually using it and living out of it. Like the information I mentioned earlier, that the present moment is irrelevant. And we don't know what it is. Like we, you know, of course, if we interviewed every person on the planet above the age of four or something, do you know what the present moment is? Do you know what it means to be present? Everybody would say yes. Everybody. I don't think anybody would. Can you imagine a friend of yours, for example, saying, I don't know what it is to be present. But when, what normally a person means when they say, I know what it is to be present, is that they know how to think about the idea of being present. Right? That they have an idea that they can kind of pull out of their mental file their mental emotional file, of what being present means. They have a mental image of what it means to be present. Like they might imagine somebody sitting like this, oh yeah, that's what being present means. But how many people when we ask, do you know what it means to be present, they actually become present in that moment? Right? Where they're, like I said, they're, they're aware, they've digested that, sense of nowness, that idea, so that it's opening a window of what it is, like the eternity of the present moment. It's, it really has a timeless quality. When you're aware of the present moment and the way the Buddha's pointing, his, the Buddhist teachings are pointing, there's a sense of timelessness because as much as time seems real, time is an idea that dominates our mind, past, present, future, these are ideas that we then, in a way that the Buddha would consider delusion, 
we live out of those ideas of past, present, future as if they're real. But there's just now, this. And so we can even have that sense of the this, the thusness, doesn't change, right? There's activity being known that's fluid. But there's what's not changing. And the thing is our orientation, you know, the way our sensitivity has been cultivated and works is that we're we anticipate like we're fascinated, obsessed by the change because we think we interpret change from a self point of view. Okay, it's like this now, but I'd like it to be this way. I'd like this to go away. I'd like, right? So we're personally involved with the changing of the sights and sounds and sensations and thoughts and emotions. We feel personally invested. So we the reason the idea of time is so strong is because we have uh, a stake. We feel, it feels like we have a personal stake and getting somebody getting somewhere, somebody getting rid of something. And so part of the timelessness of the present moment is we're taking refuge not in the person who wants to get something or become someone or get safe or get rid of something, we're abandoning that and seeing what's left. Right? And you might, we might just discover that peace, that kindness, that love, that settled understanding, that wise understanding, that the very characteristic, not even more than the timelessness of that being present, is that sense of healing or wholeness Nobody that needs anything. Con- you can call it contentment. That's really what we mean by peace. The heart's peaceful. And see, this is a peace that's not because of the particular conditions. It's because of the lack of attachment or the lack of dependence on the conditions of the present moment, what's moving. But we, we haven't trained the mind to sense that. Because the mind is obsessed with time and thought and becoming and not becoming. So we've been talking these last weeks about these different strategies that Buddha has for breaking the spell. The first is just to be aware of the way it is. But often the mind just keeps getting seduced by its emotional mental patterns even when we have a little moment of knowing the mind is trapped or the mind is caught or the mind is lost in thought, that's often not enough. So then we pull out stronger interventions. And the Buddha lists five interventions from relatively mild psychic involvement to a very pronounced psychic involvement. Right, And the shadow of each of these strategies increases as we go from a relatively little psychic investment to a big psychic investment. Like, I really have to show up as a person to do the last strategy. You know, it takes a lot of volitional force. So let me just run through these. And as those of you who have been coming, you know there's a mental image 
that goes with each of these five strategies that make them easy to remember. Now let me just give an example as I talk us through these five. So something that's quite common isn't so much the physical pain, let's say when we're formally sitting, like our knee starts to hurt or our back starts to hurt, but let's just use that example of physical pain, but more than that it's the thinking that we have about the pain in the knee, right? That's a real distraction in meditation. Not so much that the knee hurts, but I'm sitting here thinking, why does my knee hurt? Why is it happening to me? It isn't fair. What should I do to fix my knee so I can sit? This is the endless kind of mental proliferation we can have around physical pain, right? Or we could even be thinking about somebody else's sneezing next to us and sniffling and coughing. Why did they come today? They should have stayed home. Am I going to get sick? So it's just, as I go through these five strategies, it's good to have a particular obsessive thing in mind so that you can see how it might work. So the first strategy, it's really the most powerful move in the universe, really. Being aware, being mindfully aware. So that would be just using, I'll just use knee pain. Right? Oh, not liking, right? Because generally when they... By the time that knee pain gets my attention, there's already some reactivity going on. There's already a sense of a me who doesn't like it. So in that sense, in a Buddhist sense, we'd say that the predominant thing isn't so much the throbbing or twisting, burning sensations, but the predominant things is the sense of a me who feels put upon because I have knee pain, the not liking. That mental construction's the big thing in the space of the mind. So... That would be the thing that mindfulness would wake up to. Oh, not liking knee pain is like this. It's just this mental construction, this mental emotional construction being felt, being known. It's just this present moment activity being known. So we're stepping out of time, a me moving through time who bumped into this experience of knee pain, who doesn't like it, who really wants to get to that place, where I can stretch my leg out or where it just goes away on its own or whatever. I get a bionic leg, get a knee change, no more knee pain or whatever it is. All that's mental construction, all that's that greed and aversion, that activity of greed and aversion. But then mindfulness, when it's stable enough, has enough momentum, can just see all of that and realize That's just some activity arising in the eternity of the present moment. It has a momentary appearance. I don't like my knee pain. And then it passes away. And there may be another ephemeral arising. No, I really don't like it. And that just goes away. Oh, can you imagine not having... But from the present moment awareness, from the stability of mindfulness, every one of those arisings is seen for what it really is. It's just this ephemeral projection of what we call think the thinking mind. And if there's an emotional charge, it's just that ephemeral movement of emotion. No, I mean it. Right? That little charge, energetic, visceral charge of emotion, that's just that. Because the present from the place of wisdom and compassion and calm, whatever the display is of the thinking mind, the emoting mind, the feeling, body, whatever that is, 
it's seen as just a sort of projection in the present moment, a very vivid projection or production, much like our movies are these days or even novels written by good writers, you know, the, the turn of phrase, the sort of way somebody writes a paragraph can be very evocative, just like a dream can be very evocative. But wisdom doesn't forget, compassion doesn't forget. Yeah, it's very provocative, it's very evocative, but it's just what it is. It's just a, an ephemeral movement of the mind, body, here and now in the present moment. But often, almost always, mindfulness isn't strong enough to pop the bubble, right? So we might temporarily or a little bit pop the bubble, but the drama, the delusion churns on and we get sucked in. So then the first strategy the Buddha uses is what we could call substitution. And the image is a peg pounding out the old peg. Wynn and I on Thanksgiving were up in Grand Marais. Some of you have been up there. There's the folk school that's a real beautiful institution in Grand Marais on the north shore of Lake Superior. And they teach a lot of the early uh, sort of pioneer, you can build your own coffin. And they also do <laughs> timber framing. You can build your own outdoor oven and things like that. But in the, they do these timber frame buildings that you can go up and learn how to do. And they just use wooden pegs. They don't use nails to make these you know, cabins. And, you know, when one peg gets rotten, you pound it out. And so the idea is, now this is an intervention that doesn't take a lot of psychic involvement, right? It's just a subtle move. So there I am. I'm kind of aware that I have knee pain. I'm kind of aware that I don't like it, right? There's some wisdom that keeps, that gives the mind some immunity. So I'm not getting totally sucked in to the hating of the knee pain, but I'm kind of, attached to getting done with it, being done with it. And then I realize I'm still caught, right? Knowing that there's knee pain, knowing that there's liking and not liking isn't enough to pop the bubble, the drama. So then I pull out the first strategy, substitution. Oh, I'm a little, there's some aversion going on here. So let me bring in some kindness. Ah, I care about being a sensitive human being having a sensitive body that feels pain, knowing that all beings, all embodied beings feel pain. And we let it break our heart a little bit, that simple truth, because we're cultivating the immunity of compassion. right? Because when I'm relating to the sensitivity, the exposure to pain with compassion, it actually prevents, it gives immunity from aversion coming in. Because now I have a way of being with the knee pain that doesn't depend on getting rid of it. Because I can be with it in this wise and compassionate way, this embracing way. That's the very definition of compassion. It knows how to be with suffering in a way that's beautiful as opposed to in a way that's suffering. Normally when we relate to suffering, we suffer. Even the word compassion isn't a, a good word because passion is suffering and C-O-M means to be with suffering. But it can be misunderstood as like, when you're suffering, I should suffer. But no, it's like being close to suffering 
but knowing how to be close to suffering without suffering. Like, would you want your good friends when you're really suffering, would you want your good friends to suffer because you're suffering? No, we don't want them. We want our good friends close, but we don't want them to be burdened because I'm dying or I've got knee pain or I'm in the middle of a breakup and really hurting. But we do want their compassion, what we mean by real compassion. We want their stability, their clarity, their wisdom that knows that somehow it's okay that you're suffering, even though you're really hurting. They're basically modeling what I need to do myself. It's a little easier because they have a little bit more distance from the pain I'm experiencing. But still, this is what we do as a friend when we're showing up with compassion. We're being intimate as much as we can be as a friend or family member or whatever with their suffering, but we're not actually burdened. We're finding a way, a beautiful way to be intimate, learning how not to be afraid of their suffering and not to be in a hurry that it go away. We want it to go away, but not because I can't stand your suffering, but because we understand the experience you're in. Oh yeah, I know that experience, and I know you want to be free from that, and I wish for you to, to be free or for that pain to be alleviated. But if it's not, I can deal with that. My compassion isn't dependent on this going away. And boy, do we need that in a world like today. I mean, any day probably. But a lot of the chronic problems in our society, sometimes they're getting better, but sometimes they're getting worse. That seems to be how history moves. Maybe there's a general movement in the direction of less suffering. A lot of people think that. I'm not sure. It's a nice, hopeful thought. But I want a mind or a heart or a wisdom that isn't dependent on that positive slope of history. So even if we're going to hell as a people, as a wider community, the earth, whatever, I want to be intimate. I want to be able to show up with compassion. I want to be wise and kind. I don't want my like wisdom and kindness with my partner to be dependent on her like outliving me. <laughs> you know, you can't die or you can't suffer until I'm out of the picture. I mean, you're right. I say it that way because it's so selfish, right? It's like um, we want to be able to be around our dying pets, our suffering pets, our suffering family, our unjust world. We want to be able to show up to that and stay responsive and nimble, curious, even when terrible things happen, despicable things, unjust things. And I really, I make myself read, like, instead of reading the news articles that I'm drawn to, which I tend to still read, and I realize, you know, I think someday I'll write an article, you know, like how... When we look at the news, we should read the articles we don't want to read, and we should not read the articles we want to read most of the time. I think there's some real truth in that. And to really read the articles that we don't know how to be with, so we can practice being with whatever we're 
And for some of you, it would be like reading the articles that are about good things happening because that doesn't fit your belief. You know, so then, then learn how to be with that. Or uh, for me, a lot of it is like um, around racial injustice, like really uh, making myself carefully read the details and letting it land and noticing what it feels like when it lands. It's like really good practice for my mind to learn how to include that, to create space. Because my conditioning as a white person is to... I have a surface thing that, oh, I know that that happens so I don't have to read it. I don't have to be intimate with it. I don't have to feel into it and feel what that feels like as a white person who's benefited from being a white person in our society. So you have to find your own particular ways of like what's being avoided. And this is really what helps is these five strategies of substituting kindness for ill will being aware of impermanence when we start thinking that some place will be the final answer. There's no place in this messy world because it just keeps moving. So even if we ended up with some really good time, good president, good this, good that, things are still in motion. It doesn't end. It isn't like, okay, now we're permanently in this good place. Things fall apart. And then they come back together and they fall apart and and, and from a Buddhist cosmological point of view, this never stops. This keeps moving. So we have these ways of bringing in other, sort of the opposite, kindness, impermanence, for ignorance of things that things are permanent, or ignorance that makes aversion and hate make sense. That doesn't work, the Buddha says, then, and you keep obsessing about your knee pain, then you reflect on, like, well, what am I setting in motion? Well, I'm becoming a grumpy, angry person, and here I am in the middle of the aging process. I'm going to just have more aches and pains as I get older, and if all my, the best I can do is to be angry at my knee pain, what does that mean for the future, what's coming? And then we get disgusted and the image is wearing a garland of rotting flesh. Like, oh my God, that is not the look I'm looking for. (laughs) And really to shock ourselves out of like, why would I be cultivating a mind state that is this repulsive? (laughs) Some of you, I don't know, whatever today's equivalent of being goth or some of the younger people in the room, you know, maybe someday that will be in, but... Yeah, yeah, rotting flesh, yeah. To be really disgusted by that. No, you'll never forget that image. So that means we're perpetuating negative patterns in the mind that makes us not who we want to be. Why would we do that? We wouldn't. We only do it because we're distracted or we think ill will or greed, lust is something beautiful. But it's not. It's a hunger. Right? And in Buddhist cosmology, again, they really have horrific images of people whose minds are dominated by greed and aversion. It's like, oh, that is not who I want to be. Right? Do you want to be an angry person, a deluded person, a lustful person? No, we really don't. Because we just become more and more that way. These things have a way of feeding on themselves or building on themselves. 
The third strategy, like when that doesn't work, we can't scare ourselves out of the pattern, basically, right? Then it's like distraction. What am I willing to pay attention to that will break the spell of what's not helpful? That's like, and I've been using the image, like what do you dangle in front of your three-year-old when they're doing something they shouldn't be doing? So they take the toy you're dangling in front of them and let go of what they shouldn't be doing. What can we, ins- uh, in, what's the word, inspire us or um, seduce ourselves with? We'll take a walk, call a friend. Absorb into some activity so that we let go of the obsessive, not helpful mental activity. And that's just, the, the image the Buddha used is just redirect, so looking at something else. So if a person were fixed looking at this, what can they look at, redirect their attention to? And the fourth strategy, stilling the mind is how it's talked, or redirecting, not redirecting, I'm sorry, uh, tracing back, um, reconstructing is another way, this fourth strategy. And this is like, so that doesn't work to re, you can't dangle anything in front of you that will take your mind off of the knee pain and obsessing, why me, it isn't fair, do I need surgery, I don't have health care, on and on one thought leading to the next thought. And then the mind thinks, okay, I've got to still this obsessive, like there's a fire burning. So instead of looking at the fire, which feeds the fire, I'm going to think about the fuel that led to the fire. Okay, there are trees, logs, right? And where did they come from? Well, there's earth, water. You see, it's getting cooler already. Because the thing about the fire, the me hating my knee pain, like I said, there's, there's something in that obsessive thinking that feeds itself. But if I start to think about what came before and what became before that, all of a sudden the whole seductiveness, the selfing around the fire, when the mind gets the bigger, more complex picture, it sort of loses its seductive charm. And the image the Buddha uses is somebody running and he realizes or she realizes, they realize, why don't I just walk? And then they realize, why don't I just stand? And then they realize, why don't I sit down? Why don't I lie down? And this is, it's basically a way of deconstructing the drama, the fire, the burning fire of obsessing, whatever that flavor of that obsessing is, by tracing back, tracing back, tracing back, tracing back. So you can see it takes a lot of psychic investment. You're doing a lot of thinking about yourself, about your mental activity. It'd be very easy to go the other direction, right? thinking in ways that, increase the flames of the fire, the suffering. But you're specifically thinking, deconstructing in a way that's cooling the mental fires. Okay, so how did that happen? What led to that? When there's what, does this happen? Right. So we're, we're getting back to the roots. And the thing about going back to the roots, you eventually see that there's nobody behind it. It's just one you know, more subtle conditions that led to more gross conditions. That's how things come to be. 
You don't find a pearl mark behind the whole thing. You just find more conditions, more conditions, more conditions. And it kind of interrupts or disturbs the the burning because the burning is, this is happening to me. But that's just a very superficial and inaccurate concept about what this actually is. Me not liking knee pain, right? Just comes with the territory. And we see how natural and unavoidable pain is as we deconstruct it. And if that doesn't work, then we use resist, right? So in the Buddhist uh, realm of strategies for working with the thinking mind, there is a place for suppression, resistance, crushing mind with mind. That's the image to remember, right? You crush mind with mind. You say, no more. This has got to stop. And it's really good to learn about the power of resoluteness or resolve. And it really is born not that you know what's right or rather what to do, but you know that this isn't helping. You know that without a doubt and you draw the line, you kind of establish the mind in that place that knows, I don't know much, but whatever my mind is doing with this knee pain, it's not helping. That's all I know. And I'm not going to forget that. I'm kind of like, that's the line in the sand. The mind resolves on that point. This is not helping. Right? That's the power that allows mind to crush mind. Like the truth that this isn't helping. I don't know what to do if I did. Right? Those, those are the earlier strategies. They're not working. So all I have left is the understanding that this isn't helping. And that's where we establish the mind because the point here is it never is skillful to give up, to just follow a mind, the habit of the mind that is leading the mind to stressful, hellish (coughs) conditions. Why would we give in? Like, think about a mind that's addicted to something that's really... Uh, addictive and really destructive. You know, you would do whatever you could do. I mean, some people do really amazing things. They sign up to be locked up for three months or whatever it is for a recovery program, you know, where they're they're basically sign away their freedom because they don't, they know they need something or they give their keys away to their friend their keys and their credit cards so they don't go out and drink or buy drugs or whatever it is. Have unsafe or unskillful sex depending on what the addiction is. You know, or they, if they're addicted to pornography on the internet, they shut the Wi-Fi off you know, and don't cancel the subscription or get rid, get rid of the computer. So sometimes we have to uh, act out our resolve in really powerful ways. And it would be great if we could just be aware of those tendencies with mindfulness. Oh yeah, it's just this being known and that was enough to pop the drama. But that's clearly not the case for us a lot of the time. So maybe we'll come back one more time to this set of teachings and remember there's both the discourse, the translation of this talk from the Buddha and a nice article um, up on our website 
you go to resources, look under that, and you'll see Dharma blog is one of the down uh, lower menu items, Dharma blog. And then right there, the first item in the blog is these uh, handouts that relate to these talks. And uh, it's also always linked in the weekly email. So you can get that if you're getting the weekly email or you can sign up for the weekly email by going online or there's a form under the bulletin board. But we're a little bit over, so there's no time for discussion this morning. I definitely will save some time to hear how you're using these five strategies next week. Let's just take a moment, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a couple silent breaths together. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.